0: you have a great patent idea, you need to go to a patent lawyer. You don't need to go to a litigator. You don't need to go to somebody who's great at maritime law. Patent law is what you need. Well, these are specializations that everyone accepts and it makes those fields better. Welcome
1: back to Everyday Leadership. And today I have a great conversation with someone who has been in the game for about 25 years plus. He has launched companies in that time and he's helped other owners and investors launch their own companies. He is now currently the co-founder and the head of leadership at Interim Execs. He is also the co-author of a book, Right Leader, Right Time, Discover Your Leadership Style, which he co-wrote with his co-founder, Olivia Wagner. And today we talk negotiations, While we end up losing a lot of negotiations and the right way to win those negotiations. We talk about the power of the great question followed by the pause. We talk about going from creating a social community to a fully fledged international business and a different field experiment along the way and how they have been really, really eye opening actually and really, really helpful in helping them to become successful. Talk about being all things to all people and why that's problematic, especially as a CEO. Talk about why all leaders actually need to have the right amount of ego. So often we talk about egos are bad, then no, oh, no, egos are good. Then just the right amount. We we'll talk about what that is. We obviously delve into the four distinctive leadership styles that are found in business today. Why it's about defining your lane rather than staying in your lane. Also, what is your PR? What's your point of no return? Why is it important to have a point of no return as you navigate through life? We'll also talk about embracing yourself and standing for something. Man, Bob has a wealth of experience, which is not a surprise. And I absolutely love this conversation. And I know you're going to love it as well. So I'm going to stop talking, but let's get straight into this episode of Everyday Leadership. How are you doing today, Bob? Shelby, I'm great. I'm honored
0: to be on with you. Honor is is all mine. And
1: I always go way back. I always go way back with my guests, but I was trying to see what the journey was like to get them to where they got to now. So what was it like as a young teenage Bob growing up? Did you grow up in Chicago?
0: Yeah, the suburbs, but Chicago, yeah.
1: And what was the aspirations? What did a young Bob want to be when he wanted to be older?
0: You know, must have been young Bob was always entrepreneurial. You know, I was uh, cutting people's lawns in the summer. I was shoveling their driveways in the winter. I was always doing that kind of thing, which doesn't exist in the U.S. anymore. For many years, we were in a a suburb and no kid ever knocked on our door and said, can I cut your lawn? Can I shovel your driveway? It never happened. There must be something generational about that, but that's the kind of stuff I was doing. So what's the
1: first like official business that you creator you stepped into i'm serious
0: well i'll tell you about the one kind of uh fun project before the real business there was a game that was really hot it's still around trivial pursuit you ever played it yeah so years ago the chicago cubs the baseball team i'm not talking about when they won the world series six seven years ago but way back they were going to be in the playoffs and a buddy and I thought up this idea we should make Trivial Pursuit Game for the Chicago Cubs. And so we did. We had 250 cards, 1,200 questions and answers. And the game came out the day the Cubs lost. And I was like, oh man, this was this must have been a bad idea. But back then, this was pre-internet. We had sent the game to all the television stations in Chicago. And on one of the nightly 10 o'clock news stations. One of the anchors, he had been a Chicago Cubs bat boy. And he pulls out the game, our game, it's called Cubs Mania. And he starts asking trivia questions to the this famous sportscaster and they go back and forth. And the game sold out. We had made 10,000 sets. The Cubs had lost. They were not going to be in the World Series. They lost. We still sold 10,000 games we got back on press. We made another 10000 They sold out, and it paid for my graduate school. How old were you, then? I was 24. Wow. So that was the first kind of winging it. The real thing I did then is I was in graduate school, and I got an idea. A fellow student had bought a computer, fancy brand new at the time. This was in the 80s. It was a huge, lunking piece of furniture. And he bought this other thing called a modem. And he said he didn't know who to call on his computer. And a little light went on for me. And I thought, hmm, there's a product idea here. So I dropped out of graduate school to start what became the first consumer magazine in the world that covered online services and eventually the internet.
1: So you've always been one of those people who was ahead of the game, ahead of the times. You see those little small ideas and how you can make them quite big thing. That sounds like.
0: Yeah, I was too far ahead. I know you like origin stories. And so I'll tell you the the magazine online access. I started it when I was 26. It went bust, went bankrupt when I was 28. There's nothing like being an arrogant young person thinking you know everything and having to walk into, in my case, federal bankruptcy court, downtown Chicago to go file paperwork for the company to go bust. That was a humbling moment. Even in that
1: humbling moment, even in that failure, I'm guessing there are some major lessons that you've taken from that experience that have kind of helped become a foundation for the other successful entrepreneurial adventure you've had since then.
0: You know, it's a great question. I first decided, I've had a long time to look back on this, and I first decided to hold, as I call it now, a pity party for about a week. Only one person was invited. (laughs) And at the end of the pity party, I kind of realized that while I had blown it on so many levels, I had hired one of my best friends. That was a big mistake. I had never raised enough money. I had spent too much money. All these things and so many assumptions, there were some things we had gotten right. We had a great product. We had subscribers around the world. We had one of the strongest, what's called sell-through on newsstands, the percentage of copies That sell. We had national advertisers. So we had all these things going for us. And so I got this crazy idea that I should go buy the rights to the publication back out of bankruptcy court. And so I did that and relaunched. And it was slow going. I didn't have any money, but eventually it put me on a list. If you know Inc. Magazine, Inc. tracks the 500 fastest growing businesses. In the U.S. based on their audited results. And it put me on the Inc. 500 list. So eventually it went from, I couldn't do anything right to I couldn't do anything wrong because once the commercial internet hit, we were golden. And I'll tell you the lesson there. The biggest one was all the assumptions I had made the first time around, I kind of threw them out. So for example, I was new in magazine publishing and I thought, well, if you're going to attract national advertisers, you need a rate base of at least 100,000 copies in circulation every month. You know, it sounds great. It's, wow, it's at least 100,000. Well, getting back into it, I couldn't afford that. And maybe I was wrong. So I cut it to one-fourth. I cut the circulation by three-quarters, but I kept the advertising the same. So for the advertisers, it looked like a 400% price jump. They all still got in. And I realized... I made an assumption the first time around and I didn't need to do that. They didn't need a 100,000 rate base and they didn't care basically what the page cost them. It's a huge lesson.
1: That's a massive one because one thing I've definitely found with leaders, especially founders in particular, is when you run a business and it, it fails and doesn't quite work out, there are times when they struggle to trust themselves and trust their instincts or even being able to like, hey, you know, i got that something around and try something different. They just like lose a lot of self-confidence because of the failure that they had. And it sounds like for you, you, you stepped into that and you're like, okay, you know what? I made a lot of decisions last time. I got that completely wrong. Let's try something slightly different and I couldn't afford it anyway, but what's the worst that could happen? And that for me sounds very, very different. I'm just curious as to how did you develop that? strength of character and that approach to even taking a failing business out of, like you said, out of bankruptcy and trying again.
0: Desperation is a wonderful motivator. When you don't have anything else to do, I was feeling kind of ashamed that I had dropped out of a really good graduate school program to do this. And so part of it was feeling like I was unemployable. Part of it was thinking, you know, there's still some way to crack this code. And what do I have to lose at this point? In some ways, I'm a big fan of naivete, of the fact that a lot of the risk we all take is in the face of ignorance, and it should be so. It should be that way. If we really, really knew everything stacked against us, it would be even more terrifying than it is. The funny point about all of this is a million dollars had been put in by investors into online access, and when I bid for the rights out of bankruptcy court, I didn't understand how that process went. I didn't know how that whole world went. And initially, a trustee had been appointed by the court and the trustee said, well, if you just want the rights to the name and the back issues, someone's going to buy your office furniture. It really just came down to that was the only asset. And you're going to have to go to whoever buys the office furniture and bid for the rights. And I thought, I don't want to do that because that's going to be a sophisticated business person. And so I called the federal judge, and I gather you're not supposed to do that as an average ordinary citizen. And by luck, I called at lunchtime when the judge's clerk must have been out, and the judge answered the phone. And I said, judge, this is case such and such, and I'm trying to put in a bid, and the trustee really won't let me do it. And the judge said, do you know you've called the federal judge? sorry. He said, don't do that again. So I was thinking, I never intend to be back in this situation ever again. Well, a couple of weeks later, you know, these trustees, they have hundreds of cases, all these things going on and they get called into somebody's office and they got a tape recorder and they're saying, is this a list of the assets? Are these the liabilities? Yes, yes. And they say, okay, interview over. The trustee turns off the tape recorder and he says, Don't ever call a federal judge ever again. I'm just nodding my head. He said, what's your offer for the assets? And I said, $125. And he says, will that be cash or a check? (laughs) 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 What do you think, Shopey? Is that a big answer? What? Huh? I mean,
1: (laughs) when you said that, were you expecting an outright no?
0: I don't know what I was expecting. (laughs) It's funny because later in my life, I had a wonderful mentor who turned into a business partner, a guy named Jim Camp, And we wrote a book together. It, It was his writing. I helped him get it published called Start With No. Start With No has become a bestseller a negotiation that's translated into 20 or 30 languages it still sells around the world i narrated the unabridged version of it and so i had no training in negotiation up to that point i, I again i just it was almost as if you know stupidity is the best thing i've got going for me which is what you know how else am i going to do this with hindsight it was the best possible thing i could have done
1: When you think about negotiation now and obviously having a, a mental like that who's taught you a lot, what are the main good lessons you've learned along the way, along the journey?
0: One of the biggest ones is you better have a mission and purpose. So many times we go into situations, they're going to be negotiations. We don't want to think of it that formally, but we really don't know what it is we want, what our objective is. We may have some vague notion. Overall, like, oh, gee, I'd love to be the president of an organization or I'd love to be rich or whatever. But in the particular negotiation you're in right now, what is your mission? And most people have no idea what that is. The related thing is that many of us go into negotiations and we have no sense of what it is we would actually be seeking of the other side. How perhaps they could be thinking of this. And so with Jim Camp, a lot of his coaching was around, it was, it would be this mission statement of helping the other side discover something, not pushing them into a yes, not forcing them into something, but simply this kind of mutual discovery of what it is that, that we have as an agenda. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it definitely does because I think that the more you can open the eyes of other people in that conversation, there are times when you can even think that, let's say, the example, the pie is quite small. We can actually expand the way they look at things. They're right. just actually it's a lot bigger than what it is. It makes that negotiation a lot easier because now you're not talking about something so small, you're talking about something a lot bigger. And 50% of something small and 50% of something massive, 50% of $100 and 50% of a million, there's, there's two different numbers there. And I can completely understand where where you're coming from and looking at it from that perspective.
0: Can I share with you one other yeah. story of ignorance? I don't think I've ever publicly shared this. Yeah. So years ago, so, so I did online access and we sold it to a big publisher. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life at that point, And I happened by chance to run into another person who became a mentor and he had this weird job title. He was an interim CEO. Interim executives had been around in the UK and France, Germany, Netherlands for a while. It was not in the US yet. And so he was a mentor and I started up a organization. I had these domain names, interimceo.com, interimcfo.com. And I started doing projects where I would go in on a project leadership basis. And at one point, a large corporation sent me a threatening letter, public company, and they claimed that they owned all of these words, even though they didn't own all of the domain names. I thought that was a little curious, but you know, it was like, oh my God, I can't use anything close to this n- name that I have and I've been using. Now at that point I had been coached by Jim Camp. And so he said, you want to ask a question of their leadership as high as you can go. And So I got the name of the CEO of this very large public company, worth billions of dollars, thousands of employees, and his assistant answered. And I said my name, and I said I got a letter from their law firm, and the CEO got on the phone. And I said, you know, I'm calling. I got this letter, which is threatening me. And I said, why would you want the bad publicity and the cost of this lawsuit? And I stopped talking, just asked him the question, Jim, now I'm Jim Camp coached. And he said, that's a great question. Let me check into this for you. I thought, oh my God, he's a human being. (laughs) He's a human being. He actually, I think he actually heard me. I have no idea what's going to (laughs) happen. Shelby, I never heard from them again, ever. Just one good question. That's amazing. That's the part of the right question. What what Jim would say is the power of a great question is that you're really firing up someone's brain in terms Mm -hmm. of thinking. You know, what he would say is, is that someone like a Winston Churchill or an Abraham Lincoln, the power of their speech was so evocative, painting a picture, that they could do that with statements. But for most of us, the most powerful thing we can do is figure out the right question. I might have sidetracked us, our conversation. No, no, no. I think you haven't. It's, uh, I thought you'd enjoy that. I definitely have. And even there's
1: something that you said right there, even when you ask the question and you pause, we always get the ability of the uncomfortableness of of silence. And we fill it with a lot of words, which then actually stop or confuse what we originally came into that conversation with. So be able to okay. ask the right question and just pause. There's something around that was really, really powerful about that as well.
0: You're touching on another point. This is sparking for me because Jim Jim and I were partners for many years. He passed away a, a few years ago. But, you know, one of the things he would say in a negotiation is no saving. What does that mean? And What he meant by that is, is that someone should have the power to think about and to deal with whatever question they're being asked. It, it's not my place having asked the question, why would you want Why would you want the bad publicity and the cost of this lawsuit? It's it's not my place to then go figure it out for him. He's the one running the big corporation. I'm just a little guy. And the same thing, if you are in a negotiation with your teammates, which is one of your teammates may brilliantly ask a great question. They may look uncomfortable doing it. Don't save them. Let them be with that because the other side may in fact Come closer, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, definitely does. I, I can hundred percent agree with that. Been in some uncomfortable negotiations when I worked in <laughs> business, and led into it to sit in the silence, and then the other side starts to talk, and they come a lot closer. It's it's, it's not easy, <laughs> but it definitely so it's a powerful technique. But I like that. No, well, but this is,
0: this touches on what you do, which is. In the modern age, we all need coaches. Mm. It's not an optional thing. And and so, for example, your coaching is a necessary thing.
1: You had mentors on your journey. Did you ever have coaches on your journey or other people who have made a massive difference in your
0: learning over the years? I have been blessed. Jim Camp in a way, saved me at a point in my entrepreneurial journey when I was not doing well. And then this next miraculous act was we had sold the magazine and it wasn't selling for a huge amount of money like, oh, gee, let's go, I'll go off and retire. And, you know, it's that line, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And kind of miraculously learning about this acquaintance, his name is Philip Monagoe, And then he had this weird job title, interim CEO. And when he told me what he did, he handed me his new business card. And his new business card said, CEO of Yahoo. This was at the beginning of the internet bubble. And in the industry, we knew Yahoo was going to go public on zero revenue. Not zero earnings, but no revenue. And the guy who was going to become famous, Masayoshi Son in Japan, SoftBank, he had put a hundred million into Yahoo the month before it went public. So here's this acquaintance, Philip Monaco, and he's telling me what he does, and it's blowing my mind open. Just completely a new thing I had never considered. And I essentially on the spot signed him up as my mentor, but you're gonna be my mentor. <laughs> I went home, bought these domain names, and started doing projects for companies, and did that a number of years. Then we formed this organization, Interim Execs. I don't do projects anymore myself. What we are, we're this global matchmaker. We have this incredible team of executives around the world. We call them RED Team. RED stands for Rapid Executive Deployment. This is how far it's come, Shopee. We've created an award, an annual award for excellence in leadership, and it's named the Philip Monaco Award for Excellence in Leadership. It's named after my mentor. So- I think Philip is kind of blown away at this point, which is he has this random conversation with a guy he barely knows. And I just go trundle off and do this.
1: There's something around execution that's super important because a lot of times people have a lot of great ideas. That sounds good. That sounds good. That sounds good. But you don't ever get to execute on them. You actually, again, had that light bulb moment. And you went and you created something on the back of it, which is then obviously had so many iterations and it's got bigger and bigger. But I think there's something really, really important around the power of execution that you've just kind of shown as a great example.
0: Well, it's kind of you to say that I'm compressing many years here for for, so so that we can have a a good conversation, but it took a, a world of failure. Doing gigs myself... You know, as I said, in Europe, this was a given thing. In the U.S., not so common. The business of interim execs took years to figure out. It originally started as a social network, you know, just looking at LinkedIn and MySpace and Facebook and saying, well, let's just form a community of people around the world to do this. Well, we did that and it was useless because its only function was a search engine And companies started calling and they would say, we need a CFO here. We need a CIO here. And I would say, well, there's a search engine. Just go type in CFO. And they would say, no, we need you to tell us who to hire. And I thought, oh my God, we got it wrong. We spent all that money, all that programming, all those years, we got it wrong. And so there were a number of those failed experiments. Ultimately, what happened was we had about 7,000 executives show up kind of on our proverbial doorstep. Oh, wow. We developed ranking, scoring, and screening. And that's what allowed us to get to this concept of red team. When you just look at the top 1% or 2% of CEOs or the 1% or 2% of CFOs, and then you can form something which could turn into a business because you're at a level of excellence that is so high that a company owner or a board would actually trust they could come in and solve a problem in short order man 7000 that's a lot yeah which is actually you know i i know we were going to talk about the new book right later right yep. time and that was the basis for the book because what happened when you have that many people showing up to be honest with you i mean the the vast majority of those executives showing up their careers were not that great they were all right But in terms of demonstrable results and and measurement of, you know, I took this division of a company from 100 million to 500 million, or I saved a thousand jobs here in this division, or whatever, that was just a little minority of all these thousands of executives. The majority, they weren't remarkable. And it was the initial reason we wrote the book because it was this idea that someone earlier in your career, you should know some of these danger points not to do. So, for example, a lot of executives, smart people, they try to be all things to all people. In our world of being a matchmaker, you know, you're know, you trying to learn what does somebody have an expertise in that is better than anyone else. And so many, the vast majority of the executives are, well, I could do big, I could do small, I could do domestic, I can go anywhere. I don't care what industry I'm in. It's like, well, That Swiss army knife approach went out years ago. There is no one who's all things to all people. And when we were writing the book, it became so obvious because you would look at, for example, medicine shall be if, if you said to me, we're now friends. And you say, I got this pain in my foot. I don't know what it is. Well, I'm going to tell you to go see a podiatrist. If I know somebody to say, I got a great podiatrist for you to see. I am not going to tell you about some neurosurgeon. (laughs) Who's just wonderful on the brain, but he also dabbles in being an expert on, you know, foot surgery or whatever. It doesn't happen, right? So in medicine, we've accepted that. Even in, or you want to look at something like law, you have a great patent idea. You need to go to a patent lawyer. You don't need to go to a litigator. You don't need to go to somebody who's great at maritime law. Patent law is what you need. These are specializations that everyone accepts, and it makes those fields better i mean in medicine longevity is so much higher there's specialization in business and in leadership not so much we do the opposite we assume that if somebody did one thing well they must be able to do everything well
1: how much of ego do you think does that play even with that feeling of i feel like i can do everything i supposed to let me specialize in a particular area for leaders
0: It's a great question. You must see this every day (laughs) in in your work. It plays and it's a a dilemma because to be in leadership, you have to have ego. You have to have this sense of confidence and, and that confidence should translate into things for your team and your stakeholders, your shareholders, your community, which is that you're a trustworthy person. But at the same point, it cannot go to the point of not being able to listen, not understanding when you're just plain wrong. And we see examples of this everywhere, every day. I love one of the recent stories much closer to, it's a UK story, not a US story. The P&O fairies, mm. the CEO fired 800 people electronically. Yep. And in the UK, that's illegal. You could actually do that in the US and it's not illegal. You would just say it's immoral. But in the UK, illegal. And there was this comment from one of the MPs, member of parliament, they halt the CEO in front of parliament tonight. His quote was something like, are you just completely incompetent or was this intended to be criminal? You know, we see these examples every day of kind of leadership run amok.
1: And with the book and with the, all the different execs you spoke to, I mean, you spoke to well, over thousands of execs just to kind of pull us all together. I know you came up with this FABs kind of framework and I want to lay it a bit more around the Like, For those who don't know, like, what, is, what is FABs?
0: We identified four winning leadership styles and they're very distinct. Fixer, artist, builder, and strategist. FABs for short. And, and by the way, the, there also there's a, a free assessment tool coming out on the website. So if any of your listeners want any more insight, they can go take the FABs Leadership Assessment. But in brief, Fixer is the style, that mode of leadership that loves running into the burning building. The difference with a Fixer leader is they really need to do that time after time. They need the troubled division, team, client relationship And when that's done, the best thing for them is go into something else challenged. If you put a fixer into a steady state situation, they're going to go crazy. Or as one of the people we interviewed said, you know, if I put a fixer in one of my businesses and it's not broken, he'll break it. That's fixer. Artist. Artist is the leadership style that sees the world as a blank canvas or a piece of clay to be molded. And it is a compelled kind of leadership style, which is... If you have somebody on their your team who cannot stop inventing creating, it could be somebody who's better at messaging to clients, to the marketplace, social media, it could be somebody who's relentlessly creating product service. That's artist leadership style. Builder style, granted, every business person wants to be a builder, but builder in our in our definition is that they are driven to create system and process to take a team from not dominant position to market dominance. Builder has market domination on the brain, whether it is national, international, or local. And once they reach scale, the builder tends to be somebody that would get bored with all that success and needs to go back and start again with a smaller team. Repeat. Strategist. Strategist is the style that operates completely at scale tens of thousands of employees where personal relationship cannot be used in leadership. It's a completely different skill set, how you move complex or large organization forward. And it is not based on you and I have some personal relationship. Therefore, you can trust me. I can trust you. That's fabs. What is your style? Artist, for sure. In the background, you, you can barely see this, but literally I'm very good at thinking up product ideas, these books that I've done, all of that. And then in my spare time, I paint. At home, I have a combination. It's, it's both office during the week, and it is art studio on the weekends. I know.
1: I love how you can feed both of those sides of, the, of your creativity, both in business and, and outside of that. So um, it's
0: amazing. Okay, so big question for you, Shelby. If, and I, I'm, <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot because which do you think you are of the four?
1: Ooh, that is, that is quite tough. I think I'm ooh, I'm definitely navigating between a strategist and a builder.
0: You're first, I would say, strategist, at least in part because of the ability to coach. And coaching is by sometimes one-on-one, but my guess is you're also coaching teams mm. and those could be large teams.
1: Yeah, I enjoy complexity. I enjoy navigating in, in complexity. So definitely... um. Strategies for sure. Even when I worked in in corporate environments and I moved through different areas, one I like my I don't like my days staying the same every single time. But I liked having that macro kind of hold of the bigger picture and being able to plan for the future and recognize that things are gonna change. But that really I I enjoyed that piece. So yeah.
0: Yeah, one of the reasons I was really eager to talk with you is because, you know, listening to your podcast you talk a lot about, you know, not necessarily fixed rigidly into your role, into your title. Yeah. And, you know, I was curious how it resonated with you because we also want to get past what a person's individual title is. We live in an age where it would be so exceedingly rare for a person to stay at one company their entire career. And so people will be mobile and there's nothing wrong with that. And the more that you can reinforce your particular style and understand that's your asset that you take with you in the world and that you keep on developing, the book we talk about the commonalities and these successful styles, and one of them is doubling down, is that you have to keep reinforcing the thing, we have this phrase in the book, your highest and best use. Mm -hmm. And really for a successful career in leadership, you have to keep reinforcing that. I'm curious how that resonated with you versus, you know, I'm a product manager. I'm the vice president.
1: It really resonates because I think how, I love the, the term actually highest and best because the term I've really used has been around your identity. So rather your identity being around the labels of I'm a project manager, I'm a VP and it feels like that. It has been around recognizing what your actual style is and leaning more into that. So therefore you're not you're like, oh, I need to stay in this particular organization because this is it, or I need to stay in this particular job title. It's like, no, what is what drives you? What's your style? What's the thing that actually gives you joy when you're operating in that zone, you're operating in your zone of genius and you're just flowing? That's why I really love what you said around when if you're in business, but then I can step out of and go to an art studio. I'm still being creative, I'm still flowing because regardless of what you're doing, whether it's personal or professional. You're in that space. And that for me is the important piece that I think people really need to lean more into and explore and understand a lot more of, especially in this day and age where I can say things are consistently changing. There's a side to society that then says, but then if you niche down, what about all these different opportunities? Or you need to have two, three, four, five things you go, you can't just put everything all in one space. So, what do you say to that?
0: You choose your path. You are choosing your path, and there are going to be pivots we're all going to take. It's absolutely going to happen, especially because it's not us in a vacuum, right? Technology is impacting just about every business and industry. You'd be hard-pressed to think of any industry. I mean, even if you thought, you know what, I'm just going to be a taxi driver. That's it. You know, just want the black cab in London or whatever. Okay, well, then Uber comes along and... So we don't ever want to put out a message which says stay in your lane. What we want the message to be is you define your lane and that journey of your life can absolutely, it will look like it is taking turns. It's not going to be a straight line. There is just this nuanced difference between what are these successful styles that double down and reinforce on a kind of expertise versus folks where it's just too many detours. It's around this word of being committed, of commitment. And what is it that you are committed to? I was talking to a pilot the other day, and he was talking about making this journey from he was going to South Africa from the U.S. You have to cross water. And you reach a point when you're a pilot, you calculate in advance this point of no return PNR. It's this point where if everything is fine, the weather's okay, where you're going to, the islands you're going to land at, you've got enough fuel, wind's in your favor, blah, 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 you go. But if you don't, you have to turn back. And I thought, well, this is interesting for the leadership journey, the leader's journey. Where do you reach this point of no return? And for the majority of people, They don't ever want that. And so this is what leads to this kind of dilution in career, which is, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do that. And in the end, what did they stand for? I'll use you as an example, Show you the opposite. I can tell just from reading about you, you stand for something. You have voice. You've made a commitment. I'm sure you know this. You are committed. And that's why you're successful. That's why you're going to be more successful in the future. I could kind of predict it. If you were a stock, you're a stock I would buy because you have this voice, you have this commitment. You kind of crossed your point of no return here. And for a lot of people, they just, they're not going to face that. Does that make sense? It does.
1: I guess I'm, I'm then asking and I'm thinking, what stops people from actually getting to the point because there are times when you can actually even see it like it's ahead of you but it's something that's like oh i'm getting close and then you do something and it takes you further backwards and there's something like around people being scared to actually cross that point and based on obviously the work that you've done you've been doing the book and things that have come out from the from just your experience as well as the questions you've asked people what is it that stops people from actually crossing that point that you found
0: you hit the key question, and you use the right word because you said scared, and I think all of us experience fear, and there is that question in that moment of fear, what are you going to do with it? It's just human that you will experience the fear when you see an interview with some great actor, and they will talk about this fear, this stage fright that even veterans feel, and yet they still go forward, and it is such this nuanced thing, what you're going to go do with that fear. We use another word in the book, which is embracing. There comes some point where you kind of have to embrace yourself, that you understand you're not going to be all things to all people, that you have a particular thing you're going to stand for. And this is why we say the artist style, for example, is compelled. A lot of artist kind of leadership is at their peril. It's not the money, not the fame. It's not the title You know, you have someone on the team, you know, someone who's a renegade, an outsider, they don't fit in. That's not comfortable. It's conflicted. And yet they are compelled to go do that. And that's okay. That kind of compulsion, that kind of commitment is a good thing that we like. To use the most extreme example, the world can't stop looking at Elon Musk. He's the premier artist of the age. This doesn't mean he's perfect by any stretch. He was deposed in a trial about a year ago. And he said, I'm paraphrasing. He didn't like being CEO. He would rather spend his days in engineering and design. That is the thing that compels him, that drives him, not the need for the CEO title, which is why at the moment it's up in the air. Is he going to buy Twitter or not? I'm not so much on that as, you know, a lot of shareholders dumped Tesla. As soon as he announced the bid, to my mind, totally wrong thinking because part of being compelled in the artist mode is you have to have multiple canvases going at the same time. And so that actually fuels his success as opposed to fixer and builder modes. Those are linear modes. When you see a builder and they're excelling, they're excelling at one thing. you got a friend who's in fixer or builder mode and they're trying multiple things at a time. They're going off course. Very different styles. Is it possible for
1: a person to have a dominant trait and then other ones? And I'm thinking back into, even into the pandemic in particular, where there were a number of, well, a lot of CEOs were like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to do what to cope with. So they went into chaos mode and they were trying to figure things out. And some of them leaned a lot more into their people and the organizations and they navigated through that. Some other people panicked and if five people. They all kind of figure things out eventually and, oh, we don't really hear of any seals leaving. But yeah, if you were to look at how they all reacted, they kind of had different strands of these four areas, even though that wasn't their default mode.
0: Yeah, you're completely right. All great leaders are a combination of the four. We would never try to pigeonhole someone and say, this is it. You're it. You're, there's one thing. You're never going to be the rest. That's not true because all great leaders are called upon across the entire range of a canvas to do what is necessary for their organization to succeed. The flip side is, it's back to what we were talking about before, which is knowing if you have a dominant mode serves you well. It's the question of of how much you're going to dilute yourself. I'll give you some examples. Peloton, the exercise bikes, the connected bikes, great in builder mode, but the founder in fixer mode, not so great. Sitting with a partially completed million square foot manufacturing plant, that's not going to get finished, not for Peloton. And so it's like, man, don't you think a fixer ought to come in there? And, and granted, someone is in there now, but that's an example where it's like, This is why we need to honor these complementary styles of leadership and understand that there is a right time and situation and organization for a different style. Another global example, Oatly, oat milk, right? Coming out of Sweden, I think it is. I don't know about the UK, massive expansion into the US, supply chain problems, everything else. And, you know, finally, maybe it's in time, but, you know, finally there's a fixer coming to the, forefront here. No one's right in all situations. It's not the case.
1: even go back even when, I think as you were talking, I was listening to that, I would dig some political examples of like Churchill, for example, where in times of war, he was great. As soon as the war was over, he was rubbish and <laughs> they had to get rid of it. So it's even, there's so many different examples that you can look at around what is the right time and is, is this the right person for where the organization is going? And there's an interesting battle that happens which is between what the organization wants and what the shareholders want. They've so been taking the Elon Musk, for example, where I mean your CEO is telling you that I prefer being like engineering and operating in that space as supposed to be in a CEO and when he now starts to feed that creativity to like, oh, I can go and play around with Twitter. People react and the share price goes down because people want him there. So what do you do when your board wants a person, but yet that person recognizes this is, I should go into a different zone because what I've done, what it has got us this far is not necessarily my dominant. How, do you, how can you react in that situation? How does an individual react in that situation if you if face something like that?
0: He's a great example. Elon Musk is a great example because his two biggest endeavors, Tesla and SpaceX. Okay. Each of those organizations is about 20 years old. There is a key difference, I think, which is that SpaceX, there is a very trusted lieutenant. She's the president. Her name is Gwen Shotwell. And it's interesting over the years, there's no way you could say SpaceX had a smooth ride. Most of the rockets blew up in the early years. And Tesla, you know, the early years, it never had a Gwynne Shotwell. And there were all kinds of problems over manpower and production and, and those kind of issues. And it's very interesting how you could see complementary leadership styles coming to play in SpaceX between Elon Musk in artist mode, because he's always primarily in artist mode, and Gwynne Shotwell who clearly is expert in builder and strategist mode and and how well that worked together. I recently wrote about this a little bit because I had all of 60 seconds to meet Elon at an event in Chicago a few years back. And it was right after he had won this $1.7 billion contract from NASA. And that was after having blown up four rockets. Think about that for anybody's business. You fail repeatedly to get to the point of, of one of the biggest triumphs. And it was my only question. I made him and I said, how did you do that? <laughs> how, how do you go from blowing up four rockets to NASA giving you this contract? And his answer was completely, wonderfully inarticulate. But it didn't matter because he just, he. it's this line from Emerson, who you are speaks so loudly I can't hear what you're saying. Wow. That's who he is. Who he is speaks so loudly, I can't hear what he's saying.
1: So wow, well, that's a powerful line. That's a really really powerful line. I think that kind of speaks to even when you show up in a particular way, regardless of what your failures are, you kind of your star still shines bright because you know letting those failures be the definition of of your accomplishments. It's just part of the process. And there's something else you're kind of touching as well, even having complementary styles, that even around having a great team of people around you where they're not just clones of who you are, but they actually have different skill sets to who you are. So you have that mixture, which really makes it so much more easier when you might be in one dominant space. But if you're C-suite you're in different areas, You can actually lean onto their strengths and you have a great unit around you, which is quite good as well. I am curious as we kind of come towards the end and you you touched it previously and I wanted to learn a bit more about when you think about your point of no return and what the future holds for you, what is that?
0: It kind of snuck up on me that, you know, I've always considered myself very entrepreneurial and You know, I've helped launch a bunch of companies and all of that. And I recently kind of look back and it's like, I've been doing interim execs, leading interim execs, this organization now, 14 years. Like, how did that happen? And I realized it's not about the money. Somehow, at some point, I became committed to something bigger than me, bigger than money, That there's this reason why I'm supposed to be doing what I'm doing, that these wonderful organizations show up that have needs, and that I'm sitting with these, I'm blessed with these trusted relationships, these marvelous executives, and that I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to be that connector or conduit between the two, and I can't stop and i can just see god willing that i could should be doing this the next 25 years of my life now alongside that i do have a mission which is we want this leadership assessment tool to acquire validity if you will in the, i mean in the statistical sense of becoming valid you know at the moment it's really just a science project to figure out can we determine can we help people determine their own leadership style But the realization that I had become committed to this, maybe at some point it was a more conscious decision, but it was only recently that it dawned on me, which is, oh my God, am I committed?
1: There are are times when you can tell when someone speaks about something and that purpose and passion and full alignment, which mean they're two different things, and it's still there burning and blazing. when I listen to you talk about inter-execs and what you want to see happen. I can hear that full passion and and purpose kind of of coming, coming out of you, leaping out across the screen, which is, which is brilliant because that's kind of, like I said, that's kind of space you want to be operating in where you are excited about what you do and you want to see it grow and you want to see it make a difference and keep on becoming such a useful tool to the next iteration of what you're doing. So that was good to hear. And how do you define leadership?:
0: It's a great question. I, I think leadership has to have a component of inspiration in it to be able to influence people around you, and probably it ties into commitment, which is to something greater than themselves, which, at a minimum, needs to be team. Our definition of leadership is broad in the sense that if you're in an organization and you're responsible for one or more people, you're a leader. Leadership has to include the fact that there are people that you are responsible for, that you're responsible for the well-being of an organization, a team, a client, whatever that is, but that you're going to take whatever that is to some higher state. You're going to take what is, and you have committed yourself to make it better.
1: I've enjoyed this. I've really enjoyed this. Actually, I love the, none of the work that you currently do right now, but even the the history, different experiences that you've had and things that you've kind of shared today, they've really, really resonated. And I think for me, it's always quite good to be able to listen to someone, not just share their own experiences, where you tap into the multitude of different things, which is what the book is all around. Where you're leaning to that, you kind of bring that all together in one space. But the more you can learn from other people, the more you know, one, have that self-awareness, but two, you know how to, be able to navigate to avoid making the same issues and making the same errors that other people do. So, people, make sure you buy the book right at the right time. It's going to be in the show notes, as well as the details with um, Bob and Olivia, his co-founder, out around their website, indirect sex, and even the the tool that's been created that you can play around with that we want to see get out there as well. So, we're going to put a link in the show notes for that. But Bob, thank you very much for this conversation. You give me a lot of things to think about, which is what I I loved in there. (laughs) But let me just step away from a conversation and be like, oh, there are a lot of of nuggets and gems and wisdom. So thank you very much for it.
0: Shopee, thank you so much. It's been an honor and I look forward to meeting you in person. It's going to happen.
1: It's going to definitely happen. (laughs) This is Everyday Leadership and we'll speak to you soon.